Hello, I'm glad you've joined us online. One thing is crystal clear in Scripture, and it's that earth is earth. It is not heaven. We shouldn't expect earth to be heaven. We get a taste of heaven on earth at times, but everybody on earth experience trouble. Jesus told his first followers in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus dealt a death blow to sin on the cross. He won our victory there. He is our victory. There is hope in adopting God's perspective on trouble, and that's what this series is about. Knowing God's perspective on trouble and thinking through how to adopt it as our own. That's what we're trying to do in this series. We're taking the outline for the series from an old book called The Crook in the Lot by Thomas Boston. The subtitle is God's Sovereignty and Wisdom Displayed in Our Afflictions. It was written sometime before 1732 when Boston died. You might be wondering, what is a crook? A crook is not a criminal in the way we're using the term in this series. In today's language, a crook is a criminal. The way we're using the term and the way it was used in the 18th century was a crook was a crooked thing. Something in your life, an abiding trial that is a part of your lot in life. The crook is a trial that you must deal with in your life, agonize over, and wrestle against. The providence of God has established a train or course of events that fall to every one of us during our life in this world. This is our lot. So crook is short for a crooked thing that forces you to work around it. Ecclesiastes 7.13 says, Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. There is a lot riding on our response to God as we deal with the crook or crooks in our life, in our lot. That is a total understatement. There is a ton riding on it. Our response to the Lord in our crook, will either make or break us. It impacts our relationships, our approach to work, projects, and basically our enjoyment of life. It determines whether or not we're going to be miserable or really enjoy life in spite of the trial that we're dealing with. All of these are damaged by your attitude toward God in response to your crook, or you're free before God to handle the crook. Notice that the verse says, consider the work of God. The crooked place in your lot has been made by God himself. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? It's the work of God. You can try to straighten the crook, but in reality, no one can straighten the crook but God alone. 
So you must go before God and work things out with him related to your crook. No one can do this for you. My son Thad was a serious baseball player. He was a prospect, and he wanted to play major college baseball at least, and then see where uh, if there were more opportunities after that. However, Thad had major back surgery his junior year in high school, and that's the year when all the colleges recruit heavily, and he missed that whole season. And I was very concerned about how Thad was going to respond to God as he dealt with this crook. And uh, I knew he would be made or broken by his response to God in the middle of it. As we were all going through the trouble uh, parents go through, they suffer with their kids while they're suffering for sure. A good friend of mine said, God must think a lot of you to let you go through this trouble. My immediate thought was, I'd be okay if he thought less of me, for sure. But what my friend meant was that God knew we could take it, and he wanted to do a work in me, and a work in Thad, and a work in Cindy, and the whole family that he could do in no other way through this crook. Parents definitely suffer whatever their kids are suffering through. If I railed against God as we were all going through this trouble, God's work would be stymied in me. If you and I, however, humbly accept the trials and ask the Lord to make the most of them, He can work in us to accomplish his will through it, and he does. He gets glory in this. There is a root cause of a crook. It's sin that causes crooks. It's not necessarily your sin. Sometimes it's your sin. Sometimes it's the sin of another person. But sin is the source of crooks. Even accidents that do harm happen because sin entered the world. Sin has bent our hearts and minds so that we become crooked to the law and commands of God. We must admit that we fall short of God's standards, and God has justifiably bent our lot to make it crooked. At the beginning of time, Before sin entered the world, everything was declared good, and it was good. It was paradise. But then the first couple sinned. The choice of the first couple to sin really messed things up. Another understatement. But everything was then messed up by sin. That sin, their choice, infected our world and began to spread like a virus. We we have seen how viruses spread. But this virus didn't affect millions 
it affected everyone on the planet. The virus of sin is a universal infection. No one escapes the the virus of sin, and no one escapes the consequences of sin. Here's a description of the consequences in Genesis 3, 16 through 19. To the woman, he said, this is God speaking to the woman uh, and to the man, eventually, uh, about the consequences of sin. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There are relational consequences to our sin that infect all of our relationships with selfishness. And to Adam, he said, first man, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Since sin entered the world, work is a hassle. <laughs> I can't even imagine what work would be like without the hassle of it. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's there. This means that sin impacts our lot in life in various ways. First, there's a relational impact. We feel the most acute pain in our relationships because they are the joints of society that connect us to family, at work, uh, in church life, and other arenas. Relationships are designed to be springs that refresh us, but they can easily become bitter. Verse 18 says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Even in the most basic relationship of husband and wife, it becomes easily adversarial. God has a purpose for this, and I'm going to mention it in a minute. The second way that sin impacts our lot is vocational. There are all kinds of problems and snags in in work and projects, uh, we, we've come up with Murphy's Law. It, it is real. And I will say Murphy exaggerates. Not everything that can go wrong goes wrong, but a lot of wrong happens. A lot of things go wrong when we're doing projects and when we're working hard. We're unsuccessful. We get stuck. And nothing can change that. Why? Because God has decreed it so to accomplish his purpose. Verse 18 says, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Work is a hassle by God's decree. We can bellyache about it, 
but it won't change a thing. <laughs> it, it's just a hassle. There are other ways that sin affects our lot. There are natural ways. There are deformities and infirmities, both common and ordinary. There are weak eyes. Women are barren. Some have sickly constitutions. Others are blind and, and deaf or dumb. Uh, I, I wish it wasn't this way. But the reality of sin causes these crooks. God has decreed this trouble, and he's created the consequences of sin so that we would turn to him in the midst of our trial, in the midst of our trouble. This is one reason that God has brought trouble into the world. He, he brought the tribulation so that we could turn to him because he's overcome the world. God hopes that our frustrations will lead us to turn to him and seek him out. He is the only one who can help us with our crook. What he has made crooked, who can straighten out? He's, he's the only one. I, I personally think it's amazing that God loves us in spite of our sin. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He wants to help every one of us come to know him through the work of Christ on the cross. And one way he draws us to himself, one passage Jesus says, no one comes to the Father unless he draws him. And one way he draws us to himself, God and God the Father, is through the crooked places. He, it's his kindness in the middle of the trouble that leads us to repentance. It's on us then to wrestle down our crook in our lot and accept it from the hand of God. Accepting a crook in our lot is the opposite of I don't deserve this right now attitude. If you quiet yourself under the crook and calm the improper rising of pride, God will work with you to accomplish his purpose through the trial. If not, it's a waste. Going through the trial is a waste. The remedy is to see the wise hand of God in everything that is bearing down hard on you. This is the starting point for the right attitude that allows God to make the most of the crook in our lot. To deal with the crook in our lot, we must accept the paradoxes of life on earth. And we, we need to acknowledge that life on earth is not heaven. We're going there. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to heaven. But boy, this life is not heaven. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes when he was going through what seems like a midlife crisis. He was totally melancholy for sure. He is trying to discover what life is all about, and he draws some conclusions. And 
Solomon's conclusions that he draws in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, they seem gloomy and hideous, but through the eyes of faith, we can see that what he's saying is true. First paradox, paradox is, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Ecclesiastes 7.1, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. This is only true if you have been reconciled to God and become his friend through faith. That's Then you, you can understand that this is true. The next paradox, the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay heart to it. Now, no one in America that I know would choose to go to the house of mourning over a party house. But the house of mourning is more profitable because you face your destiny there. You realize that you're going to someday move on from this life and go on into eternity. No one except Jesus got out of this life alive. They don't, we don't get out of this life alive. Next, a wise man's rebuke is better than the song of fools. Ecclesiastes 7.5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of a wise man to hear the song of fools. Um, a wise man's rebuke, if you can take it, is much more profitable than a foolish song, a little ditty <laughs> that we, we don't really get anything out of. This may be obvious, but not to everyone. The end of a matter is better than the beginning. Verse 8 of chapter 7, Ecclesiastes. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. <laughs> We're excited at the beginning of a project or when we start work or any, any endeavor, but it requires patience to bring it to completion and find the satisfaction of completing the work. Finally, being quick in spirit to anger causes damage. Ecclesiastes 7, 9 through 10. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Anger that lodges in your heart leads us to do damage to relationships. It sabotages our work. It messes up projects. If we get angry, we ask the wrong questions. Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. We, we don't ask these kinds of questions. These questions twist us up inside and take our attention off of the present, which we need to really be focusing on. We begin to compare other times in our lives with uh, the present, times when things were good. And it, it's, it's amazing 
the more you think about the former days, the better and better and better it becomes. And what we can do is we can make wrong insinuations about the character of God. We complain and we fret, and this is not good. I want to share a video with you from Johnny Erickson Tata, and she sets the example for us to respond to God in the middle of tragedy, real tragedy. Let's watch this together. I grew up in a very athletic family, tennis, horseback riding. My earliest memories of um, hearing about the God of the Bible, though, was around the campfire on the beach of the Delaware shore with my sisters, my mom and dad, hearing stories of Noah, David, Moses, Daniel. But God really, really, he, he really wasn't very personal. All that changed, though, when I was a 14-year-old kid, went away on a kind of a church weekend retreat. And I was challenged by the speaker. He said, kids, I want you to measure your lives up against the Ten Commandments. Well, I had never committed adultery or... I don't think I, I stole anything in a big way, but you know what? It, it didn't matter. As I measured my life up against those commandments one by one by one, oh, I, I got this overwhelming sense that I'm missing the mark. I'm not going to make it. Oh, God, help me. It troubled me at first that God gave us a bunch of commandments that he knew very well we couldn't keep. But then it hit me at that weekend retreat. It hit me. That's why Jesus came. He was the one who kept the commandments. He was the one who obeyed the law, even though I didn't and even though I couldn't. I was only 14, but um, I was able to reach out right then and embrace Jesus and say, I, I need you. I, 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 I want to make it out of earth alive, and you're my only passport, so please. Well, I came home from that weekend retreat, all fired up, all pumped, all excited. But then um, through high school, um, the enthusiasm of what I had done began to wane, especially when I started confusing the abundant Christian life with the great American dream. My prayers were so self-centered, like, uh, God, help me to lose weight. God, I need a new boyfriend. God, give me good grades on this test. Unfortunately, I guess I thought I had done God a great big favor by accepting Jesus as my Savior. And I remember right around my senior year of high school, I prayed, Lord... I'm not, I'm not doing this Christian thing right, and I know it. I don't want to go off to college and defame your good name, smear your reputation. I know it's about far more than just me, so do something in my life to jerk it right side up, because I'm really living this life wrong. Just a few weeks after high school graduation, as I was preparing to head off to college, my sister Kathy invited me to go to the beach for a swim. I swam out to this raft, athlete that I was, I didn't even touch bottom, hoisted myself up onto it and then took this really stupid dive into what ended up being extremely shallow water. I snapped my head back when I hit bottom and it crunched my fourth cervical vertebrae, severing my spinal cord. There I was lying face down in the water, desperately hoping that my sister Kathy would please notice that I had not surfaced from my dive. Unbeknownst to me, her back was turned to me. She didn't even see me take that dive. But a crab bit her toe. 
and it so startled her that she quick turned around in the water screaming to me, Johnny, watch out for crabs. And when she did, she saw my blonde hair floating on the surface. I was face down, ready to drown. She came swimming quickly, pulled me up out of the water. And I never, I never was so grateful for fresh air. She saved me. But for what purpose, for what reason? Because now, lying there in a hospital, doctors told me I was going to have to sit down for the rest of my life as a quadriplegic without use of my legs or, or even my hands. My hands don't work. And I remember thinking, God, is this, is this your idea of an answer to a prayer to be drawn closer to you? If it is, you're never going to be trusted with another one of my prayers again. I mean, I'm a new Christian. How could you have taken me so seriously? I sank into deep depression. I remember there were wonderful Christian friends who came to the hospital and they encouraged me. And one Bible verse they shared was from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, where God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans not to harm you, but to help you, plans to prosper you and to give you a hopeful future. God, you, you mean you plan not to harm me? Well, what do you call quadriplegia, huh? What's that all about? As I read that verse and the context around it, I realized something. That when God said that, he was saying it to his children who were being dragged away into captivity by, by the Babylonians. They were going to exile. They were going into slavery. They had decades in front of them of hard, awful suffering. And I began to see that God's plans for a hopeful future for me was not necessarily jumping up, dancing, kicking, doing aerobics, running, walking, getting back use of my arms and my legs. No, God's plans for me go far deeper, a deeper healing, a precious healing of the soul. Because as I was pushed into the arms of God every morning, and that's the truth, even to this day, don't be thinking I'm an expert at quadriplegia, but as it was then in the hospital and as it is today, every morning I wake up saying, Jesus, I can't do this thing called life. Please help me. Please show up. Give me your smile. Give me your strength because I can't make it through the day. And because I go to God with that earnest dependency and, and requirement of His grace every single day, I take that back. No, every single moment I experience the sweetest most precious most intimate union with Jesus Christ so in Jeremiah 29 when God says he won't harm us doesn't mean the body doesn't mean our circumstances he's not going to do anything to harm our soul yes our body may get harmed but it will somehow serve to enrich our soul in closing let me just say that quadriplegia 46 years of it that's a long time I deal with chronic pain. I, um, I had breast cancer a couple of years ago, and I remember, I remember as my husband was driving me home in the van from chemotherapy one day, we were talking about how suffering is like little splashovers of hell, kind of like waking us up out of our spiritual slumber. And then we were pulled in the driveway, and he said, well, then what do you think splashovers of heaven are? Are they those easy, breezy, bright times? where everything's going your way, where you have health. And we said, no. Splashovers of heaven are finding Jesus in your splashover of hell. 
And to find Jesus in your hell is ecstasy beyond compare. And I wouldn't trade it for any amount of walking in this world. Notice, Johnny casts no aspersions on the character of God and submits, finally. She, she had to work through it. She had to th- work through her anger. But she submits that God has cr- decreed in her life this crook that she has to deal with. This is an example for us to follow. She has dealt with the crook in her lot. Where are you with your crook? Everyone has a crook in their lot. Grumblers and complainers make poor comparisons and conclude that they are being ripped off by God. That's unfaith. They look around them, and it seems like their neighbor's lot, the people around them, their lot is completely straight. It's not crooked at all. There is no wisdom in comparison, the scripture says. And grumbling and complaining is a waste of energy. You will get no grace from God while you complain and grumble. No one can trust God for you as you deal with the crooked places in your life. It will go better for you if you refuse to fight against God and deal with what he has made for you to deal with in your life. I want to focus on some next steps now, as we always do, because this is a lot to deal with. Um, working through the crook in your lot is is difficult, and it's it's something that, We need to submit to and accept our lot in our life. And I want to share these next steps with you as a way to focus on your response. The blessing is in the doing of the Word of God, in obeying Him. And that's how we grow in our spiritual life. And so I want to Share some next steps. Here are my suggestions. My next step today is to, for the first time, I accept Jesus as my Savior and commit to follow him as Lord. Maybe you're pursuing God because of a crook in your lot. God wants to draw yourself to to him through your trials and through your trouble. Will you give your heart to him? Will you commit to pursue him and try to figure it out before him? Another step would be to stop being angry at God for my trials and submit to his purpose for me. And another step, stop complaining and accept my difficulties with the help of the grace of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for... Your kindness. It's your kindness in the midst of life that draws us to repentance. And I pray that you'd help us to deal with our lot in life. 
to struggle through it and wrestle through it and deal with it in a way that brings honor and glory to you. You're the one who made us. And you you hope that we would seek you and find you and commit our life to follow you as Lord and God. And I, I pray for the help and the strength to take the next steps that you've laid on our heart to take today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.